Gavin walked into Orea's room to find the generals and their aides gathered around a table on which a number of maps of different scales were laid out. So you've got spies with the Color Prince's army? More than a dozen. Call Asmith was the Perean Satrapa's younger brother. He was affable, polite, and not terribly bright. Projection or actual data? Gavin wanted to know if he was staring at the positions the Prince's army had been in eight or ten days ago, or if these were estimates of the current positions. Projection on excellent data. The Blood Forest General was bald, though he was a young man, freckled and foolish. A political weasel who had no business leading a hunting expedition, much less an army. How old is this? Ten days. Takes my handle of two days to get to the smuggler who's carrying the letters. The smuggler had good wind. Earned himself a bonus for getting it here in seven days. It arrived last night. Uh, you using that smuggler for the return trip? General Asmith shook his head. Which to Gavin meant that the smuggler had probably lied about how fast he'd made the trip in order to get his bonus. Most of the smugglers on the Atashian coast still used galleys so they couldn't become becalmed, with a low displacement that allowed the long wide ships to traverse bays that the pirate hunters couldn't. This time of year, the winds would rarely make it possible for a galley to come from Atash in seven days. Probably more like nine, maybe ten. If Gavin had been here, things could have been different. If Gavin were Promakos, things still could be. But that was out of reach for now. His father had done that, and his father wasn't going to give it back for nothing. Gavin's own personal defiance, his own happiness in marrying Karis, was going to cost men their lives. But that wasn't his fault. Gavin wasn't going to accept the blame for that. He would have not so long ago. No, these generals had no business being generals. And they'd all been put into position by people who ought to have known better. There were plenty of veterans from the last war who could have been put in charge. Gavin had done the best he could by the people of Garriston. He couldn't make the right decisions for everyone else. How fast is your turnaround? We're not actually going to start strategizing until your luck's Lord Father arrives. He should be here any minute, Lord Prism. Doesn't matter. Lord Prism? When you arrive in Rue, I think you'll find that the army is here. Gavin pointed to a little town called Voril, two days from Rue. You'll find that the Corregidor has maybe half the working guns he's told you, and less than half the powder, because he's always been more worried about his ego than about defense. So rather than look like a fool to you who are trying to save him, he'll act like one and lie to you, which you won't find out until it's too late. And I've marched through this country. If you're not being harassed and being made to pay for letting your wagons get spread out, the section is easy. I covered it in three weeks, but my brother has saboteurs and raiders who made us paranoid at every step. If they've been allowed to just march through here, they'll be on top of Rue before you know it. Your spies have been cataloging the wrong things. What's important isn't the exact number of horsemen or who's a freed slave versus a volunteer. Those are good to know, but what you needed to know was how many anvils do they have, how many skilled blacksmiths, how much scrap iron. Have veterans from the False Prism's War been put in positions of leadership, or have those slots gone to the Color Prince's favorites who don't know anything? How long are their supply lines, and how much food are they delivering every time? It's too late for a lot of those questions to be answered now. Too late for you to have raiders intercept the supply wagons, or to destroy the anvils or murder the blacksmiths and sabotage the wagons wheels before they hit the Little Sisters Pass. You could have bought yourself weeks, and only put a dozen men in danger to do it. The Color Prince hasn't led an army before either, and it's not your fault that none of you have, but it is your fault that you haven't asked the men who marched with me or my brothers to advise you. You're going to ask those men to die, and not for good reason. The fact is, no matter what you do, you won't save Rue. It's already over. If you were wise, 
You'd send messages to tell them to evacuate the city and regroup at the neck of Rook Head, and to take out of the city whatever supply the Color Prince's army needs most. But you won't do that, because you're looking to win a battle instead of win a war. I've got my own fights, gentlemen. Fights that I can still win, and that will help you in ways you don't know. So good day, and I'll see you on the field. Gavin headed down to his own room. He spied his father coming up the lift just as he stepped into his room. Good thing the old bastard was blind. Grinwoody was with him, but the old slave had his back turned, helping the old man out of the lift. Karis lay on his bed, asleep. In a chair beside the bed, Commander Ironfist sat. He rubbed his temples, and then his bald head as Gavin came in. Commander? Lord Prism? Is something the matter? I almost lost one of my watch captains, one of my friends, in what appears to be a targeted attack. And someone murdered one of my students yesterday. A couple of the scrubs swear that the man was aiming at Kip, and the girl stepped into the line of fire on accident. Do you have any comment, Lord Prism? Can I trust you enough to bear my throat to you, Iron Fist? Iron Fist hesitated, as well he should. Well then... <sighs> Iron Fist looked down at his hands. We're doomed, aren't we? Gavin didn't follow. They were doomed because they didn't trust each other? The Grammaria is a lightning-struck tree. Still standing, but dead on the inside. That's why we're going to lose, I think. We have all the power in the world, but our faith is dead. If we don't believe in what we're doing for its own sake, we're just doing it to maintain power. And I think some of us are too good to continue throwing lives into the trough simply to feed the beast. Are we? When Drew falls, this will become a real war. And once it's a real war, and not simply an uprising of a few disgruntled madmen, then the questions begin. At some point, every one of us will have to ask if we're on the right side, if we've already decided our own side is wrong, that there's no Orholum, that the Cromeria is simply making the best of a bad situation. Then where do men looking for certainty turn? Maybe men shouldn't look for certainty. Should, shouldn't, doesn't matter. They do. Iron Fist was right. Of course he was. Gavin quirked an eyebrow. Why, Iron Fist? Are you asking me to come back to religion? My own faith is dead, Lord Prism. Not least because of you. I'd not ask you to embrace a lie, but I want my people to have a reason to die. I won't lie either. I can't tell them what we do matters. If that's beside the point, if you want us to die because it's our duty to die, I can accept that. That can be enough for me. That will be enough for the Black God. It won't be enough for everyone else. Does the Black God love me so much? We don't die for you. We die for each other. For our brothers and sisters. We die for the Black God. <laughs> Looks the same from your side, though, I suppose. Iron Fist stood, looked at Karis, swallowed, then turned back to Gavin. You should give her a ring, you know. Especially if you're going off to your death. Of course. And he should make sure she was provided for, should he die. Damn. Iron Fist laughed, and Gavin followed him. Gavin got off at the level of his father's and mother's apartments, nodding amiably to the disciple who passed him in the lift on their way to do chores. He went into his mother's apartments. He had thought he'd accepted his mother's death, but going into her room and smelling the familiar, comforting smells of the place made him pause, barely inside the door. 
There was the wood polish, the waft of lavender, the stargazer lilies he'd always hated, a bit of orange, and spices he could never place. All that was missing was the smell of her perfume. A lump grew in his throat, threatening to choke him, making it hard to breathe. Oh, mother, I finally did it. I finally did the right thing with Karis. I wish you could see it. My lord? I'm so sorry, my lord. Should I withdraw? It was his mother's room slave. No wonder the room was immaculately clean, without even dust on the mantelpiece. Kaylee, you've done well. It's beautiful. It reminds me powerfully of her. I'm so sorry, my lord. She buried her face. Gavin shook his head. The girl was young. His mother had always trained her help exquisitely, and had chosen only intelligent slaves, preferring that of her physical beauty, unlike other leading families. But there are some situations you don't get around to training a 14-year-old girl for. Did my mother leave no instructions for you? Usually, like himself, his mother had kept at least half a dozen slaves in her household. She'd trimmed back in recent years, mostly manumitting those who'd provided long years of good service. Now, Gavin knew why. She told me... She told me she was giving orders for my manumission to Grinwoody, seeing as how a slave can't deliver her own manumission to the records keepers. I haven't... Your pardon, my lord. I haven't heard anything since then. You old bastard. His father was still denying that his wife was dead, so he'd simply ignored the girl. The girl had been stuck here for four months, with nothing to do but dust the room and get fresh flowers and hope. Did she leave you a letter? Yes, my lord. I believe Grinwoody put it in the lord's chamber. Of course he did. And they wouldn't appreciate Gavin breaking into his room. But you know what? To the everlasting night with them. Gavin was more than half convinced that his father had orchestrated Karis's beating. The attempted murder of Kip seemed too heavy-handed. But at this point, he wasn't going to excuse his father preemptively for anything. Look to what you love indeed. Gavin headed across the hall, drafted Red Luxon into the lock, Jenny did until he felt tumblers loosen, and then injected Yellow Luxon, steeled his will, and twisted. The lock clicked open. He might be half dead, but he wasn't neutered yet, thanks. He set a light to burning, casting a pale yellow glare through the Red's rooms. He went to the desk, rifled through the papers. Andros Skyle was upstairs, and a council of war would surely take hours, even for men as ignorant of war as his own father. Andros seemed to think that being brilliant meant being good at everything, and his generals would have to fill in the gaps in his knowledge carefully and slowly, lest they infuriate the old man. Considering how ignorant they themselves were, it ought to take a while. It was almost comical how much excellent intelligence his father had left in the open. Gavin wished he'd come in merely to poke around. Andros was simply here so often that he clearly never thought about the danger of someone coming into his rooms while he was gone. He was never gone. Gavin found the note about the slave girl quickly. His mother's handwriting was on the outside, a beautiful looping script that she hadn't lost even as age advanced on her. We drafters are robbed of life before age can rob us of our faculties. Gavin didn't know if it was the greatest cruelty of all or a small kindness. He glanced at the letter. It was as the girl had said, a simple straightforward manumission and a grant of 400 dinars. The girl would leave slavery with more in her hand than she would have earned at a servant's wages in two years. It was a fortune for a young girl. Enough for a dowry in those rural areas of the few satrapies where such things were still customary. The only unusual bit was the instruction that the girl be given an armed guard from the Cloven Shield Mercenary Company to take her home. 
Felia Guile had doubtless thought through the fact that sending a very young and attractive girl home with a fortune in hand would put her in grave peril. Of course, sending a guard from the Cloven Shield would cost more than 200 dinars, but they had a sterling reputation. Like many socially conscious women, Felia Guile had always had deep reservations about slavery. Are we not all brothers and sisters under the light? He could almost hear her voice as she talked through it. From Orholam's perch, what difference is a man's garment? And like so many others, she'd still had slaves. Impossible to think of a world without them. Men wouldn't volunteer for the galleys or the silver mines or the sewers, would they? And what does one do with the widows and orphans when a country is conquered? Simply let them die at the first winter? Leave them as prey for slavers with less scruples than the civilized satrapies had? Still, she'd say, it was dehumanizing. The beatings, the fathering of bastards, the jealousies and insecurities of the slaveholders themselves. Philia had never liked it. This manumission was generous, to say the least, but not uncommon to those owners who feared their dear slaves would be passed on to cruel mistresses or depraved masters, or to enemy families who might force them to reveal shameful secrets about their previous owners, or even to good families that might fall on hard times and have to rent their slaves out to work the mines or the brothels. Gavin tucked away the letter. He looked around the room, wondering if there was anything else he should steal. Money? Gems? Should he try to read his father's correspondence? He opened the desk and found a box. He examined it briefly, then gave up trying to open that. Andros Guile lived and died by his correspondence. The box would yield to nothing less than a chisel and a smith's hammer, if that. <sighs> Gavin set it back into its place. It had felt heavy, too. In fact, some of the former contents of the box had been emptied out to make more room. Several jewels the size of songbirds' eggs sat carelessly in the drawer, among the feather pens and the cunning Elysian ink reservoir pen his father liked so much. Gavin felt a perverse urge to steal something. He was going to get disowned anyway, so he probably ought to do something to earn it. His eyes fell on the side table with its piles of Nine Kings cards. Apparently his father had been playing recently. It was one of the few things that gave the old man joy. Gavin had played him countless times in the past. The old man almost always won. He was a better player than Gavin, and he wasn't above cheating either, if he thought he could get away with it, though he'd been mortified the one time Gavin had caught him doing it, and had never cheated again so far as Gavin knew. Instead of grabbing one of the decks on the table, though, Gavin headed for a cabinet. His father had once pulled an amazing deck out of the cabinet after Gavin had won three games in a row. There was a lock on the cabinet, but it was nothing serious. Gavin rummaged through old papers and his father's favorite books and found an old jeweled deck box. He pulled it out, cracked it open. The cards were exquisite, but they didn't have the blind man's marks on them. Must have been his father's favorites from before he went into seclusion. Gavin dropped the deck box into a pocket and headed back to his mother's room. The slave girl was standing there, wringing her hands. He handed her the letter and went to his mother's safe, a chunky Perean design that was hard to tell was arranged into numbers at all. He tried his own birth date. It didn't open. He had tried Gavin's birth date. Good. He was sinking back into the disguise. Dazen's birth date worked. Thank you, mother. He grabbed some purses of gold and her wedding ring and some coin sticks. He gave the slave girl one of them, then a second. Her eyes went wide. Take this note to the West Docks. The Baker's Street, Blue Dome Building, houses the mercenary company, the Cloven Shield. You asked to speak with One Eye or Tyavin. I'd advise One Eye. 
he's kinder to young girls. You tell them Lady Philia Guile sent you. You can pay them up to 300 dinars to get you home, including all their expenses. Any less that, you can negotiate with them. You get to keep. Then book passage home. Where are you from? We work, my lord. Perea? You don't look Perean. First generation, my lord. Parents fled the blood war. It's not so bad. Lots of us in WeWork. Very well. It's a long trip. You should pay 40 dinars for a stateroom. Cheaper to bunk below, but don't. Make your guard bunk with you. Man or woman, doesn't matter. The cloven shield is safe. You can ask for a woman if you prefer, though. Also, take this note to a tailor. By nightfall tonight, you shouldn't be wearing a slave's garb. Understood. Gavin scribbled a note. You need to get on the ship tonight, though. This is my mother's wish, but my father isn't rational right now. You don't want to be around when he's angry, and I'm giving him good cause to be angry. He'll forget you within a week, but for now... He scribbled a second note and signed his own name on it. He dripped red Luxon on it, pressed it with his will to make it stand in the shape of a seal, and then sealed it with Luxon, barely even looking at it. This tells anyone who might cost you that the prism is going to check in on you, and if anything ill has happened to you, I will wreak vengeance on them. It may not be true. I don't know that I'll ever get to Ewerg, but if I live long enough, I'll try. You understand? The girl's white eyes hadn't contracted in the least, but now she also looked on the verge of tears. My lord, I don't know how to think. Go. It's very dangerous for you here. And me. She laughed, and he followed. Then he went down the tower and hid his father's deck and Kip's deck in a spot he was certain his father would never check. He came back up to his own room. Karis was asleep. Gavin slipped his mother's huge ruby ring on Karis's finger. She still didn't wake. Strangely, the ring fit perfectly. Gavin could have sworn his mother's fingers were wider than Karis's delicate digits. He looked at the ring. His mother had resized it to Karis's ring size. Gavin smiled. Thank you, mother. He could just imagine her mischievous grin, knowing he would figure it out. You didn't get all of your smarts from your father. Still smiling as tears gathered in his eyes, he kissed Karis's forehead. He held his wife's hand and sat with her. His wife's hand. His wife. After all they'd been through together, the fights with each other against whites, the darkness and despair. He tucked a wisp of her hair behind her ear, touched her face gently, memorized her. He took a breath, and it was pure. In a world where every danger was growing and his own strength was failing, Karis had his back. She'd always had his back. And somehow, dying though he was, power fractured, doom looming, he felt more whole than ever. The yoke of responsibility lay hanging off the bedpost. Gavin cracked his neck, rolled his shoulders, and picked the damn thing back up. Slipped it on. It felt good. It felt like it was made for him. Mauricia was waiting at the door. Her face was carefully composed, hands folded, ready to serve. Gavin handed her the note for the tower register to record his mother freeing her slave. Mauricia took it silently, but there was a touch of hesitancy in her stance. Mauricia, uh, if you're gone when I get back, I understand, but you will always have a place here. She bowed jerkily, and he could tell she was doing it to cover her sudden tears. She practically fled the room. 
Gavin rubbed the bridge of his nose and stepped into the hallway, doing his best not to look after her. Commander Ironfist was there, waiting silently. Commander, how do you feel about doing a little skimming? Flirt with death dangerous. Ironfist said nothing, but his mouth quirked up in a little grin. Though much is taken, much abides, Gavison had once said. Gavin hated poets. He and Ironfist had gathered food and weapons and taken a skull out into open waters. You going to shoot up? Gavin was pulling on armor. I've skimmed with you before. And? I prefer not to strap on weights when I may have to swim. Ah, uh, yes. Not everyone could swim in full armor. Benefit being me. Rough weather today. That was all he said, but Gavin could tell he wasn't looking forward to going at extremely high speeds over large waves. No wonder he didn't want his armor. But in another minute, they were off across the waves. As before, Iron Fist made an excellent partner on the skimmer, and their combined effort made them move quickly enough that Gavin was able to use the foils to lift the skimmer mostly free of the water. That was good because the chop was rough today, up to two paces high. With the skimmer's foils just right, Gavin was able to keep the boat mostly level. If they'd been right on the surface, it would have been a horrendous trip. Impossible, really. After a few hours, though, they escaped the poor weather. They found the Atashian coast, and Gavin skimmed west until he saw a bay that he recognized. Between the incredible speed at which they traveled and the impossibility of taking accurate navigational readings while in the middle of the chop, they'd ended up 30 leagues off course. That much error for a normal ship could mean an extra day at sea. Not for them. They'd overshot the Color Prince's army, going too far south. Iron Fist drafted a binocle, and they saw several Elysian ships. Traders supplying the army. Civilians, but civilians possibly carrying guns and powder that would wreak havoc on the peaceful innocence of Rue. Gavin looked at Iron Fist. Iron Fist shook his head. He was right. Scout first, fight later. They skimmed through the emerald waters off Edos, giving it a wide berth. People in towers with spy glasses with fine lenses would see them long before they could gather any intelligence. They passed more ships, almost all of them heading west, supplying the army too, no doubt. It wasn't good. A few Elysian ships could simply be enterprising traders who knew they could make a quick profit. But seeing dozens of galleys from Edos, Kakas from Rothgar, meaningless because many merchants owned those, and caravels from Garriston meant that whatever government the advancing army had left behind was actually doing its best to support the invasion. That meant reasonably good governance. As Gavin knew, the first sign of trouble is when those cities you've subdued stop sending you supplies. If Garriston had been turned into a city that could export goods in only a few months, that meant that the Color Prince was doing a better job governing it when he wasn't there than the rapacious Rothgari governor had done when he was there. Not good news. They spent the rest of the day scouting, not daring to head too near Ruikhead, where the fort would doubtless have good spotters, but taking note of exactly how many ships they passed, and the places where they might have missed ships. The biggest thing they learned, simply from the positions of the ships, was that Gavin had been right. The army was perhaps six days' march from Rue. That meant the ships coming to help from the Chromeria would arrive only a day before the Color Prince's army, if the weather cooperated. Not enough time. It took men time to move barrels of powder into place in a city under siege. It took them time to figure out where the best shooting angles were, and to train to remember the angles in the heat and panic of battle. It took time for men to establish infirmaries and barracks in the most logical places, and to determine which units would work with which, and for officers to figure out which of their allies' officers were morons. 
coordination, logistics, backup plans, strong points, which places must be defended at all costs, and which could be yielded and retaken at grievous cost to the enemy. All these took time. It wasn't enough to put a few thousand men in a city, and that was what Gavin was afraid his father was going to do. Andros Geil, for all his intelligence, was a politician and a drafter, not a general. Gavin couldn't hate him for it. It was how he saw himself, too. Men like Corvin Danavis had different strengths, and Gavin had learned to trust him more than himself. At the Battle of Ivor's Ridge, he'd seen a platoon cut down to half-strength, isolated and hard-pressed on his army's left flank. If they'd crumpled, the line would have shattered, and they'd been outnumbered at least three to one. Dazen had called off the charge he'd been planning in order to go reinforce them. General Danavis had stopped him. I know those men. They'll hold. Now go! Dazen did, and had won the battle. Without his charge into the center, the center would have broken. He hadn't even seen it, hadn't known how bad the center was until he arrived there with 200 horse and 50 mounted drafters. Corvin had, and he'd been right about the platoon on the flank, too. If Dazen had done what he thought instead, they'd have lost. He might have escaped after that battle, but his army would have been destroyed. Andros Skyle, on the other hand, would never trust anyone more than himself. Gavin and Iron Fist returned after sunset, sculling the last leagues to hide the skimmer. They didn't return to the Chromeria, though. Instead, they met the first ships of the invasion force. Iron Fist went off to check where his blackguards were berthed, while Gavin went to find the generals. He briefed them on everything he'd found and ignored their questions about how he'd learned the exact locations of enemy ships in real time halfway across the sea. Worse, he could tell that the fools didn't believe him. Gavin made sure a secretary wrote it all down. Just keep two sets of plans. In one, do whatever you are already planning to do with what limited intelligence you have. In the other, plan as if everything I say is true. Soon enough, you'll know which to use. He left them then, and went to the cabin some noble had been evicted from as soon as the men on the ship saw Gavin arrive. Tomorrow, he would go back out and sink as many ships as possible. It was a damned thing, war. He didn't like killing merchants, and he liked killing the slaves forced to row their ships even less. But that which strengthens your enemy must be denied him. Warholem, if you existed, if you walked the earth as a man, what would you do? Or Holem was fast some days. Kip? Yes, sir. I didn't mean I'd forgotten who you were. Yes, sir. I mean, no, sir. Of course not. Gavin smiled, though he was exhausted, and beckoned the boy in. I'm sorry to disturb you, sir. The runts, I... I mean the blackguards. The blackguard inductees. I know what they call inductees, Kip. Gavin smiled again. It took a long time to gain respect among the blackguards. Scrubs, runts, wobs, nunks. They had plenty of derogatory names that didn't stop until the last vowels. Even then, the first year for a full blackguard was usually hell. Yes, sir, of course. The commander said war's coming, and there's no way to prepare for war like being close enough to smell its breath, sir. We'd help move supplies and civilians. We'll be off the front lines, but not quite safe, he said. He said it with such an adult tone and assurance that Gavin looked at his brother's bastard son with new eyes. Four months had changed the boy. He was still chunky, maybe always would be. But as only young men can do, he dropped at least a seven already. It was like watching a man emerge from himself. The fat that had rounded and softened his features was receding. The strong line of his jaw and brow was all guile. He was broad-shouldered, and his arms, though still shapeless, were huge. His confidence was soaring today, of course, his having just gotten into the blackguard. 
it would crumple again a dozen times. Boys, especially athletes, can look like a man in a day, but it takes them longer to reconcile themselves to themselves. But this Kip, this was a glimpse of the Kip who could be. And Gavin liked that Kip. It takes some of us a great deal longer to reconcile ourselves to ourselves, does it? Looking at his brother's son, Gavin was pierced with sorrow. He would never have his own son, not even if he achieved his impossible goal, and that was looking less and less likely with every passing day. It's a good plan. Tell the rest of the runs that we're going to lose this city, so they shouldn't get any heroic ideas in their heads. Heroism is a fine thing, but heroism wasted means you can't be there to help on the day you can make a difference. Yes, sir. Trainer Fisk has been saying the same thing to us. Except the part about losing, but thank you for telling me the truth. Thank you for telling me the truth. Now, if there wasn't some bitter irony in that statement, Gavin was a marsh mug. I want to go with you tomorrow. And what makes you think I'm going anywhere tomorrow? Other than the fact that all of us are already traveling, so you'll be going with me by default. You're the Promaco, sir. Whether they call you that or not, I want to fight with you. So ready to fight. Was I any different? How many men did I kill before I really understood what it meant to kill? I'm going to kill men tomorrow, Kip. Men who don't precisely deserve killing. It's one thing to kill a white, or a murderer, or pirates, or a man invading your city or your home, ready to rape and murder and steal. It's another to kill a merchant whose goods will bring death, but who's himself simply trying to make a living. A man like that has children back home, a wife you're making a widow, and a destitute one at that. We all pick sides. Simple as that. Kip shifted from foot to foot, but nodded. We've heard from four different spies that Liv Danavis is with the Color Prince now, part of his army. So tell me, Kip, if we see Liv Danavis on the deck of one of those ships, about to toss a grenade at us, you'll kill her? Without hesitation? Before she can kill us? Oh, Holmes, beard, sir. I hope he would defend me from having to make such a choice. If Orholm defended us from such choices, we wouldn't be here, Kip. How could she go with them, sir? They're monsters. Literal, real, flesh and luxon monsters. Idealists mature badly. If they can't outgrow their idealism, they become hypocrites or blind. Liv has chosen blindness, fixating so much on the Cromerius flaws that she believes those who oppose us must be paragons. That we're not perfect says nothing about our enemies, Kip. Nothing. As it turns out, they're mostly bad. Bad enough that their rule would be a cataclysm. But that doesn't mean they don't have some good points about us. It doesn't mean that every fool who works for them is evil. It simply means that they have to be stopped. By killing them, if necessary. That's the life you're stepping into here, Kip. I leave tomorrow at dawn. I'll get permission from your commander for you to join me, but if you can't kill Liv if you need to, don't show up. I won't hold it against you as a man, but as a soldier, I won't want you covering my back either. Kip didn't answer immediately, and Gavin respected him the more for it. Uh, thank you, sir. I don't like it, but I appreciate your honesty. Honesty? When I tell the truth about this and lie about all else? Appreciate something else, boy. I'm a liar to the core. Dawn found Kip on the deck, waiting for his father. It was cold, and the seas were choppy, 
But as Blackheart's runt clothes were warm enough, at least when combined with his fat, he hadn't gotten much sleep. The idea of killing Liv, or of being killed by her, had kept him from that. But Liv had made her choices. She'd believed the lies she wanted to believe. She'd gone over to the side of madmen. How could she be so stupid? Maybe Kip hadn't known her at all. The thought made him sick to his stomach. He thought of her smile, her laugh when she made him think the walkway between the two towers was snapping, the fine curves of her body as she'd walked in front of him. The knot in his stomach eased when he saw his father come out of his room onto the deck, already speaking with Commander Ironfist. The commander was in the lead, speaking over his shoulder. Do you know what your wife will do to me if I let anything happen to you? Wife? Uh, my apologies, my lord, I didn't... It's not a secret, Commander. I married Karis before we left, Gip. You were... Oh! Oh! Clearly, that relationship had been a little different than Kip had thought in the little slivers of it he'd seen, which had included curses and slapping and jumping off a boat rather than be near Gavin. Kip closed his mouth, then realized not saying anything might look like he was passing judgment. He couldn't help but feel left out, that he hadn't deserved to hear about it right away, that his father was still holding out on him. Uh, congratulations, sir? Why, thank you, Kip. And I'm very glad to see you this morning. I've asked you to fight not as a boy, but as a man, and you've responded. And I can tell you haven't slept, so you've responded appropriately. Well done, son. Well done, son. The words were what Kip had ached to hear for his whole life, and doubly so since learning Gavin Guile was his father. But they were delivered perfunctorily, as if Gavin were checking items off a list, without emotion, without attention. Now, as we go this morning, I want you to tell me about the assassination attempt. Kip hadn't really thought of what happened in the alley that way, but Gavin said it so blithely that Kip knew he had to be right. Lucia had died because of Kip, had stepped into the line of fire. It was oddly exactly what blackguards were supposed to do, but she'd done it on accident. Kip wasn't sure if that made it better or worse. They walked to the stern, and Kip saw that they weren't going alone. At the bottom of a pair of rope ladders, a dozen blackguards stood on a skimmer the likes of which Kip had never seen. It was, of course, bigger so that it could hold 17 of them, but it was also shaped differently, like a large flying wing with eight scoops. Every blackguard was armed with a bow and a large quiver and bandoliers of grenados. Some had spare spectacles. From there, each was armed according to his fancy and expertise. A couple had bucklers. One carried a notched sword breaker. Most had a pistol. One had a beechwall, like Karis often carried, and others had the forward-bent Attigans or the sweeping scimitars. The skimmer itself had grapnels and ropes aplenty. Plus, every blackguard was himself a considerable weapon. Kip's awe and hesitancy must have shown on his face. Kip, you can't become who you need to be if I'm not willing to risk losing you. You still want to come? Cruxer was down there. Cruxer was coming. He saw Kip and lifted his chin in greeting. He looked pretty excited that he was being allowed to come. I don't bring much to the table, sir. Not yet, but you're about to learn from the best. They climbed down the ladder and onto the huge skimmer. Gavin began giving the Blackguards instructions. Biggest risk is you'll tear your arms off. You can't go from a standstill to full speed in a breath. If you have the skill, you can narrow the pipes at first. The Luxon needn't be focused. This is one place you can be sloppy. Whatever is the easiest band for you to draft will work. Gavin continued while Kip settled into his place. They released the ropes holding the skimmer to the galleon, and Gavin and Iron Fist manned the pipes on the main platform. 
Soon, half of the other blackguards joined in, while Gavin and Iron Fist gave instructions. Gavin taught them how to do turns and showed how sharply they could do it. And Kip saw the same look of delight steal over the blackguards' faces that had crept over his own the first time he'd experienced the wind and waves and the sheer, unbelievable speed. Then, when things settled down, Kip told his father the whole story of the assassination attempt as they sped across the waves. This skimmer was modified to enclose the front so the wind didn't obliterate their conversations. This is different than the skimmer before. Didn't you just make this up a little while ago? War always moves forward. And if you're not at the leading edge of what's possible, you might not live long enough to regret it. They saw many ships, but didn't close with any of them until afternoon. Gavin stopped, motioning to Iron Fist to do the same, and peered at the horizon. He brought out a large glass binnacle, which was odd. The last time he needed to see into the distance, he'd simply drafted discs of perfect blue Luxon. Maybe the clarity of this glass was better. It's flying their flag, broken chains on a black background. Gavin handed the binnacle to Iron Fist. That isn't just a big ship. It's a great ship. I can't even count how many guns it has. They're not just on one deck. 43 heavy guns, 141 light guns, 52 paces long, holds up to 700 men. Are you joking? You couldn't possibly have counted It's Posh Vecchio's flagship. If he's brought his flagship here, he's thrown in with the color prints. He wouldn't have hired out that ship. Kip understood that this was not good. Posh Vecchio? The Pirate King. One of four. The most powerful of the four. Could have sworn that ship was going down the last time. You fought Posh Vecchio before? No. I killed the previous owner of that ship and set it on fire. He was a Pirate King too. Good news, we won't be killing innocents. Oh great, uh, did you say 184 guns? Relax, there's only 18 on the stern. Comforting. What do you think they're bringing? Guns, or men, or just coming to blockade our ships from getting into Rook Bay. Regardless, big obstacle, needs removing. You always did love a simple impossible challenge, didn't you? Why do you think I let you bring so many blackguards? <laughs> Thought that was too easy. Gavin turned to the blackguards. Ready to see what you can do? He got grins in return. The blackguards were like children with a new toy. I should have given you more time to train with the... What are we calling them, Commander? Sea chariots. Gavin nodded acquiescence. Lots of guns. And let's guess that there'll be drafters on board. Maybe numerous. Maybe whites. They'll have tricks you've never seen. Expect the guns to be loaded already, though we may get lucky with how fast we'll be on top of them. Staggered approach. Try to cut their lines and set fire to the sails early. We circle sunwise so we don't have collisions. Sinking the great ship is the primary target. If any other ships join the fight, they're targets of opportunity, not worth dying for. Speed is your best defense, but expect to miss your first few shots. It's hard to adjust your aim to this much speed at first. You figure it out. If you slow too much, you're giving away your advantage and become one drafter against a ship full of musketeers for all we know. There are blindages on every deck, so until there's a set of fire or remove, don't expect to toss grenadoes up top and have much effect. Four crow's nests big enough to hold multiple archers or drafters. Eight large guns pointed to stern, including two that can aim down far enough to hit close targets. Ten smaller gun port doors that won't open until they're ready to fire. Oh, and her name's the Gargantua. Questions? When, when do we regroup? The skinny woman had hard eyes and dreadlocks. Roughly here, in one hour. If more ships rush in, one league east of the eastmost ship. Iron Fist and I have the binnacle, we'll find you. If we go down, watch Captain Blunt has another player. 
If you're completely separated, work your way down the Atashin coast until you can find safe passage back to the Chrome area. Asif? A young man with a shaven head stepped forward. Sir, I assume that every draft that we see is a target of opportunity as well? To keep knowledge of the sea chariots out of their hands? There was a pause, and Kip realized what the young man was asking. Did they specially set out to kill every drafter? Because there was no way to take them prisoner. You couldn't disarm a drafter. Just seeing the chariots won't be enough for them to mimic them easily. Don't put yourselves at risk. Low priority, but yes. Each of you is more valuable to me alive than having 50 of them dead. Got it? They understood. They weren't primarily elite warriors. They were elite guards, whose ranks had been decimated by the battle at Garriston. The Blackguard itself needed them alive. Then let's go sink some pirates. Cruxer forgot to join in, looking wide-eyed and tight-strung. Gavin drew his priceless dagger pistols and turned to Kip. Who do you hold these for me? Kip scowled, remembering how he'd nearly dropped them into the sea the last time. <laughs> Joking, Kip. Joking. Kip grinned. This is for you. Gavin handed Kip a bundle. Unwrapping it, Kip found it was a belt with a pouch meant to be worn across one hip, like a holster. In the pouch were seven spectacles, in spectral order, each in its own velvet-lined half-pocket. There were little runes in silver sticking out next to each pocket so that you could tell by feel which spectacles you were about to draw. Kip looked up at his father, wide-eyed. The spectacles alone were worth a fortune, but this looked old. Do your best not to lose the sub-red and the super-violet. We don't know how to make spectacles like those anymore. Drawing the sub-red and putting them on, Kip saw what Gavin meant. Usually you had to relax your eyes and let them lose focus to see the heat of things. With these glasses, Kip could see in the subred spectrum and the visible spectrum at the same time. You'll still have to relax your eyes to draft subred, but it makes finding good sources much easier. Gavin buckled the belt onto Kip and showed him how he could draw a pair of spectacles quickly, flick his wrist to snap the earpieces open and put them on. Then he flicked the spectacles to one side, which snapped one earpiece closed, and then hooked the other in, letting the pouch close the other and hold it firmly. Gavin gave Kip the binacle. You can draft when we get into the fight, but I want you to keep an eye out. It's easy to get tunnel vision, even for me. I'm going to be steering and drafting, shouting orders, and dodging fire and magic. You keep your head about you. If another ship is bringing its guns up to rake us with a broadside, I might not even see it. Head on a swivel, got it? Yes, sir. Kip didn't know what else to say how to thank his father for the spectacles, but Gavin didn't seem to require anything. He went to the pipes and motioned forward. With everyone on their own, the big skimmer picked up speed quickly. In no time at all, they were hurtling across the waves at incredible speed, with the gargantua getting bigger and bigger all the time. Ahead of them, Kip saw the stern gun ports yanked open, and big, big cannons pushed out the holes. On my signal! Wait for it! Wait for it! As usual, Liv woke next to Zyman. It was early, and the young man's breath was even, regular. He was a heavy sleeper. Their tent wasn't large, barely tall enough to stand in, and they slept on piles of furs and blankets on the ground. Liv rolled over, careful not to disturb Zyman. He insisted she sleep naked, and sometimes he liked to start his day the way he liked to end it. It was flattering to be desired so much, but sometimes she thought she simply happened to be the most convenient way to sate his hungers. She blinked, aware of some change in the atmosphere, a freer brush of the wind than a closed tent should allow. The color prints stood outlined against the morning light in front of the open tent flap. 
He held up a finger so she didn't speak and wake Simon. He motioned that she was to come with him. A wave of shame went through her. She felt like a whore caught by her father with a boy she didn't even love. The feelings crested, and she quickly drafted Superviolet. It was like the first puff of ratweed in the morning, except the Luxon made her think more clearly. The feelings were the vestiges of small-town religiosity. Besides, the color prince believed in freedom, free choices. She was young, she could do whatever she wanted. There was no need to feel shame here. She stood, briefly forgetting in the superviolet rush that she was naked. Koyos White Oak looked at her frankly, and she soaked up his regard as boldly as if it were light itself. She waited a long second until she saw the twinge of regret hit him, and moved as soon as she saw it, gathering up her shift and pulling on her dress so that he might think she hadn't seen it. There were other kinds of power than magic and the sword, but some power works best in silence. In silence, she dressed in her most practical dress and held her long dark hair out of the way. The color prince buttoned the last buttons for her, then she followed him out into the camp. As the blood robes had marched on, rolling over town after town, their ranks had swollen. Liv was never sure how many of those who joined them believed in their cause, or if they merely believed in victory and plunder. She wanted to despise those who joined out of convenience, but she was using Superviolet too much to be more than coolly amused most of the time. Besides, men believe in power. And what is victory but the demonstration of power? Parts of her still mourned it, but everywhere she looked, she saw that the color prince was right. Power. All human interactions came down to power. The color prince gave sermons every day, and he had disciples now, both drafters and muns, who wrote down every word and did their best to make a coherent system of it all. He talked about days in coming back and championing their cause. He talked about freedom. He talked about the tributes they all paid to the Chromeria. Though his words melded politics and religion and history and civics and science, Liv thought she discerned less of an incredibly nuanced system underneath his rhetoric and more of a belief created simply by the strength of his believer's faith that it must be rational, or their great leader wouldn't profess it. She couldn't tell how much of it the Omnichrome believed, but she knew that if he was going to accomplish his great purposes, he needed loyal followers. And those followers needed something to believe in, to unify them. He didn't preach to the mob about power, just as he didn't allow them to call him Koyos. Familiarity and knowledge both were for the privileged. Sometimes Liv thought the color prince probably didn't give a damn what all the people believed, that he tapped the heresies he tapped, because he figured he might as well exploit every resentment against the Chromeria. Have you figured out your great purpose yet, Liviana? The color prince nodded to a group of green whites who barely stirred at his presence. Greens weren't much good at veneration either. Aside from bait for my father? I told you from the beginning you were that. And no, I haven't given up all hope for Corvin. But a hostage needn't be given privileges or the freedom you have. Surely you've gone past that. I'm the best superviolet you've got. It has something to do with that. Mm, a broad guess. But not long ago you would have said one of the best. I've changed. Liv was more confident now. She had cut away the Chromeria's false humility. And I'm right. Mm. The Red Cliffs loomed above the whole camp. There were spidery trails everywhere up those cliffs, but the prince had opted to send almost everyone along the coastal road. Only his cavalry had traveled along the high road, foraging and ready to put down any armed resistance. The army was big enough now that some days there were skirmishes that Liv didn't even find out about until after dark. 
The Atashian army had probed the blood robes for weakness, but with the number of drafters the prince had, they hadn't found much. Zyman had speculated, though, that they were soon going to find out how much steel was in the Atashian spines. The army was to reach the narrowest pass between sheer cliffs and the ocean tomorrow. Are they going to crush us at the gates of sand? No. Really? Zyman thought that was the best chance they had of stopping us before we get to the grasslands around Rue. It was. But you need naval support to hold the gates. And our Elysian allies crushed the Atashian navy five days ago. Liv hadn't even heard a whisper of that. Elysian allies? But the Elysians don't believe in anything. They believe in gold. Together, they climbed up an exposed rock promontory. The prince reached the top and did something with his eyes. <sighs> Not yet. Maybe tomorrow. My lord? Close your eyes, Liv. Can you feel it? She closed her eyes and tried to feel. She felt the coolness of the morning, smelled the latrines, the campfires, the cooking meat, her own body. She felt the hummingbird weight of light on her skin, light as a wind, passing in soft billows from the rising sun. Opening her eyes, she looked over to the man who was shaking the world to its foundations, shook her head, disappointed in herself. Tomorrow, tomorrow maybe you'll see it. Go now, and send up Dervani Malargos and Jarosh Green. They were the two best green drafters the Blood Robes had, the teachers for every green who hadn't yet broken the halo. Liv went down and called for them. They seemed to be waiting, and the two of them went up on the promontory. Liv watched them as the prince spoke to them, wondering if they would see or feel what she had not, wondering if she was failing in some way. Good morning, beautiful. Always with the tests and mysteries, huh? Zyman put a possessive arm around her. Sometimes that annoyed her, but she'd been worried yesterday that Zyman was already losing interest in her, so she said nothing. I suppose. It's not capricious, though. You think? Zyman was the only person Liv knew who dared to speak derisively of anything the Color Prince did. At first, she'd wondered at that, but a little yellow and superviolet meditation had made it plain. Zyman was jealous. He felt threatened. Less of a man around the most powerful man in all the world. That was the mystery to her. So, what was it today? Asked me if I saw something. I didn't. Looks like they didn't either. Zyman nodded toward Dervani and Jirash. Those two hate each other. And both want to lead the Greens. <laughs> As if the Greens can be led. Idiots and fools. The men were bickering, faces turning red, furious. Liv could almost make out the words from here, but she watched the color prints instead. From the set of his overlarge shoulders, she could tell he was furious himself, though nothing else betrayed it. He raised one hand as the people in the camp around seemed torn between watching and not being caught watching. The two greens stopped abruptly. The color prints said something else, and they both dropped to their knees, apologizing. Odd to see a green on its knees. It's... She'd thought its knees, not his knees. Wasn't that curious? Another remnant of my childish beliefs that a person ceases to be a person when he breaks the halo. Our very language has been corrupted to make the murder of drafters palatable. The color prince drew a pistol and shot Jirash Green between the eyes. A spray of blood atomized drifted to the ground, slower than the chunks of red-gray brain matter liberated from their bony home via lead. Jirash Green's body dropped backward and tumbled down the bare rock of the promontory. Pistol still smoking, the prince bound a slender choker with a black jewel on it on Dervani's neck. He gestured for Dervani to stand. 
The drafter stood and laughed without a word. Funny thing is, I still can't tell which one of those two is more brainless. She looked at Simon from deep within the grip of Superviolet. She hadn't even noticed drafting it again, but now it was like a friend to her. And she realized that the boy wasn't hard and callous. At least, he wasn't only those. He was terrified. He was imagining his own brain painting the rocks. He looked at her, and she saw in his eyes that he feared her, too. He was tiring of her, but not out of boredom or for her lack of enthusiasm under the blankets. He didn't want an equal. He wanted to be worshipped. Simon was far more dangerous than she had realized. She would need to be rid of him, but carefully, cleverly. So he thought it was his own idea. I don't know how you do it. Liv dropped the superviolet. He could sometimes tell by her voice when she was drafting it. I don't know how you can see that and not be afraid. The shudder she let through wasn't wholly feigned. It also wasn't the shudder of desire she hoped he thought it was. She turned her eyes to his and moistened her lips. Take me back to our tent, right now. The big guns on the gargantuous top deck belched flame and smoke. Two jets of water, 50 paces ahead of the skimmer, announced the miss. One of the guns on the second deck went off next. Now! Around the skimmer, Kip saw that the blackguards were grouped into pairs, one at the reeds and one archer. Each team's archer had a rope in hand, and starting at the outside teams, they pulled. Before Kip realized what was happening, the skimmer split. Each team suddenly freed, one driver and one archer, the sea chariots breaking off from the skimmer smoothly and multiplying their force instantly. Two, four, six, and eight split off, leaving only Gavin and Iron Fist and Kip on the now much smaller skimmer in the center. The gargantua loomed larger and larger, and the eight skimmers cut the waves with perfect grace, none so close to the others that a single cannon shell could hit two of them. Kip saw that the deck of the Gargantua was actually open, contrary to what Gavin had expected. But then, even in the few seconds that Kip was watching, the great wooden screens that were the blindages were brought down by scrambling sailors. Seen in subred through Kip's spectacles, the men glowed as if lit from within, still clearly visible despite the screen. The skimmer cut hard to port, and Kip barely caught himself. He didn't see any danger, but he decided that even as he was scanning the big ship and trying to keep an eye out for more distant dangers, he should copy his father's and Iron Fist's stances. Each man had his legs set wide and knees bent, keeping his weight low. The great rudder of the Gargantua turned hard, and the lumbering great ship, sails full, began to turn. Along the broadside, Kip could see gun ports snapping open on at least three different levels. Not all at once, but as each crew was ready. There were a lot of guns. From the nearest crow's nest, a ball of Luxon the size of a cat arced out. Drafter! First crow's nest! The Luxon ball split in midair and ignited. It landed on the water only a dozen feet from the starboard side in a curtain of flame, and floated, flames two feet high. The first sea chariot cut hard to port, nearly plastering itself against the gargantuous hull. The next must not have seen the fire and the swelling of the waves, but those same swells saved it, as the swells and the gargantuous wake made a ramp that flung the chariot into the air and neatly over the fire. Gavin and Iron Fist cut wide around the burning slick, and then cut close to the ship. Musketeer! Third! Uh, fourth! Crow's Nest! There were a half dozen men along the high castle manning swivel guns. They had to aim between the bars of the blindage, but they didn't seem to be having much trouble. <laughs> Kip threw some red at them, had no idea if he'd hit anything, and then hit the deck as one of the big cannons went off mere feet from his head as the skimmer pulled even to the ship. 
Seen through the subred lenses, the world was delineated into great flashes of exploding guns, the sharp tongues of spitting muskets, the muted bursts of the grenadoes, and the ghostly shadows of men. Then they were out of the smoke. They immediately cut hard to port, passing in the very shadow of the beakhead. Gavin and Iron Fist both hurled grenadoes into that deck overhead. Flames sprang up on the mainsail and were immediately extinguished in sprays of orange luxon. A few of the lines had been successfully cut, but those that had been merely set aflame were also saved. Brace! The skimmer curved to starboard to get some separation, and just as they rose out of a trough, Gavin shot a huge ball of flaming red luxon at the first crow's nest. The drafter saw it coming and tried to blast it aside, but the ball merely shattered and drenched him and the crow's nest in flame. Kip saw two men training swivel guns on them, even as a man engulfed in flames pitched out of the crow's nest. Then the gunners disappeared in a wash of flame and exploding yellow light as four of the sea chariots closed around the prism. The portside cannons began firing, and Kip saw one of the archers on the back of her chariot simply disappear. Within seconds, Gavin and Iron Fist had the skimmer back up to speed. Bats! A flock of pigeons exploded from the deck of the Gargantua. Pigeons? Iron Beaks! Kip lost sight of the birds and the ship itself as the skimmer dodged in and out. But beyond them, Kip saw a galley coming, its triple oar decks moving the small ship quickly. Got a galley coming! Kip pulled up the binnacle and almost puked as the magnified vision seemed to magnify the swaying. No flag! Probably pirates looking for an easy kill, not Vecchios. Keep an eye on it! Then they were back into the fight. They came out from under the stern galley onto the starboard side and saw an explosion blow one of the cannons on the lowest gun deck completely out the side. <laughs> Kip thought the celebration came from Cruxer. An instant later, Kip saw one of the pigeons dive at Cruxer. It hit his chest, stuck. Cruxer slapped the bird off his chest. It splashed into the water and less than a second later exploded. Then Kip understood. Like the hellhounds Trainer Fisk had told them about, these birds were natural birds, but they'd been infused with the drafter's will to do one thing, attack the blackguards. And in this case, they'd also been equipped with small grenadoes, which meant several dozen small flying bombs were circling the great ship. Small, intelligent bombs. As intelligent as pigeons, anyway. And if that wasn't quite terrifying, seeing half a dozen of them hit a blackguard team that had slowed to throw a grenado into a gun port was... The grenade the woman had thrown bounced harmlessly off the blindage. The gargantua was a floating castle. The fires weren't spreading. It was invincible. Reeds! The big man seemed to know what Gavin meant instantly because he took Gavin's reed and began propelling the skimmer by himself. Kip, hold my feet down! All your weight! Gavin was already weaving something between his hands. <laughs> Kip practically dove onto his feet. Instant obedience. Then he followed Gavin's eyes. The entire flock of the remaining Iron Beaks was headed straight at them. With only Iron Fist on the reeds, the birds were catching up. Gavin didn't finish until the first bird was practically within arm's reach. Then he threw both hands out, and a net of yellow luxon spun out from him. It engulfed all of the birds. Then Gavin yanked his arms down and was nearly pulled from Kip's grasp. But the pressure lasted only a second. There was no such thing as action at a distance with Luxon. To throw something, you had to throw it. To slap something down onto a deck, you had to yank it down. Gavin had made the Luxon a lever, and he'd cast the entire net of the birds onto the deck of the Gargantua. Kip saw half a man at a helmet flying off the deck. Not an empty helmet. Gavin scrambled back into place, and Kip saw an orange drafter peek over the deck and spray Luxon down on the burning hull, extinguishing the flames. 
iron fists on him too and put a blue spike in his skull. They're organizing into musket teams. And the effect was almost immediate. The men on the decks must have started putting the best marksmen in front, while those farther back reloaded and gave them fresh muskets, because both the rate and the accuracy of fire increased. The other blackguards on their sea chariots had rallied around them, and they were spraying red luxon everywhere. The yellows casting flash bombs to dazzle and distract, but the sheer number of them congregating in one sector was enough to encourage the cannoneers to turn the big guns. Then, everything grew distant hushed. For a moment, Kip had a wild notion that he was hearing the sunlight hit the waves. The world looked beyond real. Kip realized he was seeing the whole spectrum at once. He could see dozens of guns. The skimmer was directly broadside to the Gargantua, and he could see the glow of men, the glow of matches and slow fuses. He could see the gleam of metal on the powder barrels through the open gun ports, could see straight through the smoke. He swept a hand out and fanned superviolet strands like spider webs out to every gun and barrel he could see. The superviolet was so fast and light, it hit its targets almost the instant he chose them. Then he swept his hand back, releasing little bursts of fire crystals so hot they burned his hand even as he shot them out at unbelievable speed. Struck by the fire crystals, every loaded musket and cannon on the starboard side of the Gargantua went off at once. The entire ship was rocked to the side from the simultaneous concussive force. And then, on three different gun decks, powder barrels exploded. Time was back. He was back. He could see men on fire, skin blackened and sloughing off, running to jump into the sea. Fires leapt out of all three gun decks. The skimmer shuddered, and Gavin and Iron Fist threw their will into getting back up to speed. Four ships coming in! Half a league! Kit felt empty, stunned. Under the beak head! Not sure that's a good idea. Under the beak! The whites will be up on deck any second! We've got one chance at this! Iron Fist acquiesced instantly, and they sped in front of the ship. They came under the front of the still-moving ship, and Iron Fist took the reeds, maneuvering them so that the ship didn't plow right over them. The wooden beakhead loomed just above their heads, close enough that when the waves lifted them, it almost smashed Kip's head. Gavin wrapped one fist in fire and punched into the hole of her head. When the wave receded, Gavin was yanked into the air, his fist still stuck into the wood. Kip lunged, but missed him. Leave him! You see anyone, you light him up! Kip could see then that Gavin was drafting still, heedless of his body hanging by one arm. I don't even think I could hold myself up by one arm. Gavin was doing it, and drafting, and drafting something horrendously complicated. If it was taking him this much time, then he was done. When the skimmer rose on the next wave, Gavin touched down on the deck as gracefully as a dancer. Two minutes. We need to keep the drops busy. And so they circled again, Commander Iron Fist giving hand signals to the three remaining sea chariots. They concentrated on hurling Luxon and exhausted their grenados. Somewhere in the fighting, one of the teams had successfully cut all the rigging to the foremast, and another had set fire to the lateen sails. But the mainsail and mainmast were still whole. The great ship seemed invincible. After perhaps 30 seconds, they circled wider, out more than 100 paces. With so many of the big guns silenced for the moment, it was close enough to still be a threat, but far enough away to be safer from all but the luckiest musket shot. The prison and one beefy female blackguard were the only ones who had the strength and the endurance remaining to continue bombarding the Gargantua with magic. Everyone had gone through all their grenados. The archers had used up most of their arrows, and the four ships Kip had seen earlier, two small galleons and two caravels, were bearing down on them. If it doesn't happen in the next...
Jacob shot a look at Gavin. His father looked oddly bereaved. Their powder room was below the waterline. It's a lot harder for a stray shell to hit it, but poor bastards. When the smoke began to clear, Kip saw that both sides of the hull had been blown out right in the middle of the ship. Some few men were leaping from the decks, and fire was everywhere. Then the waste collapsed, and the ship folded in on itself. The front half of the great ship went down almost instantly, far faster than Kip would have believed something made entirely of wood should sink. The stern rolled over on its side, open decks gaping like open wounds, swallowing the seas in great burbling gulps. Deck by burning deck, the great ship plunged into the sea, vomiting up flotsam and broken men. Mop up the swimmers? Gavin looked toward the coming ships. You see any whites make it out? Didn't see any. Doesn't mean there weren't some. Kip watched the last of the Gargantua slip beneath the waves. There was a lot of junk afloat in the waves, but not many men. Gavin had said there were 700 men on board. No. I'd rather be a mystery in a wild tale. We don't have it in us to sink four more. Let's go home.